0: When you preach or teach, Mondays are always just a really discouraging, frustrating day. It's like just worn out from the day before or something. Something very spiritual about that time. Last Monday actually felt like a normal day for me, which means the Sunday with you all was just much, much better than, I don't know. It was just a sweet time to be here. It was good to see so many people who have been missed. Uh, those that are you know coming back now, some that are contemplating it now. Uh, this has been a really long year. Those that uh, love you, uh, we miss you. And I hope we've done a decent job of trying to keep track of everyone in the midst of all this craziness. But it is nice to see that uh, we had to bring down 166 chairs this morning and the bleachers. And uh, before the kids left, we were probably at 90%. So very, very good uh, to see all of you all. This morning's sermon will be in First Kings chapter 4 here in just a couple minutes. We'll be landing the plane, really, with Solomon's life this morning. Um. We've gone a long time through a couple of his stories. We uh, dove into his wisdom literature for about eight weeks. And it's just going to end with a thud. And a part of that is because that's the way the story in Scripture ends too. And so today I want to talk to you about overcoming wisdom. And I hope when you read that the first time or I just said it out loud, you said that doesn't make any sense. Like overcoming temptation, that makes... Sense Overcoming sin, that makes sense. Overcoming struggles, all of those things make sense. But can you overcome wisdom? I believe today you and I are really going to look into a guide of what not to do in Solomon's life. Because as we have seen, like this this wisdom literature, you've got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. You've got all these beautiful uh, uh, pieces of just... Out of this world wisdom, just sitting there for you and I to pluck through and enjoy. But when we see his actual life, we're going to see that unlike his father, his just kind of falls off. And I think there's a pattern to that. I think there's a pattern that we're going to see today that he actually overcome his own wisdom. Where have we been? Well... I told you the last eight weeks, we've talked about righteousness, generosity. We've talked about wisdom, where it comes from. We've talked about parenting. We've talked about being passive. We've talked about purity, purity before you're married, purity after you're married. We've talked about those things. We've talked about the power of your words, and we've talked about how we direct our heart, that it starts off wicked, and that you and I have an opportunity to make it wise, to make it righteous as we get closer to God, as we ingest more of the Word of God, as we spend more time with Godly people, you and I, our heart changes. There is that old flesh that's still there, but He has a hard time getting our attention as this new spirit and this new heart within us is in tune with what God has in store for our lives. He is at work creating something new, creating something that looks like Jesus, creating something that the Holy Spirit is in charge of. And in all of that, what have we seen? Well, Solomon's wisdom, if you'll just go through the books, you know, it's said that with... 30, 31 days in a month, you can read one proverb a day and you can read five psalms in a day and you will read both books every month. You see, the reason why people say that is because there's so much wisdom in Proverbs that you can just keep plucking it. And, and this week, Proverbs chapter one, there might be two or three verses that really get you. And then next month on the first of the month, you read it and it's two or three other ones. And I love this because I, I'm hoping you've seen this as we've gone through this these last eight weeks. I love the idea that Proverbs one is there's several different topics. And then Proverbs 2, there'll be several more. And there's really probably 8 or 10 or 12 throughout the whole book. But it's just like every other chapter, there's just another nugget. There's one about all these things that we talked about. None of this stuff comes out of the same chapter. It comes out of all of them. And you can just pluck them. So one day you're struggling, and two or three weeks later, there's another wisdom verse, or there's another verse on how you and I should use our words and use our tongue and how we should speak. And how we should uh, love people. So what have we seen? Well, in the last eight weeks, we've seen it's been practical. I'm going to help you with your notes today. If you take notes, this got really out of hand, and I'm going to apologize. Just start off by writing one capital P, and you've done half of your note-taking for the rest of the day. Because this one got really crazy. Proverbs, what have we seen? It's been very practical. It's useful in every area. When you read through the Proverbs and you see these pieces, these would have been written, let's say... 27, 28 years ago by a man that didn't have a cell phone didn't have a vehicle didn't have the internet entertainment was different do you understand where I'm going with this? so when you and I read through the Proverbs you say man that applies today what you're getting is a piece of the divine image of God on a man 2800 years ago that could write about things you and I are living today It's amazing They're practical. They're protective. If you just, you wouldn't even have to be a Christian. Now, this may give me trouble with some people. You wouldn't even have to be a Christian to be blessed by the proverbs if you just read them and did what they said. That's how practical. That's how protective the wisdom literature is. If you just did what it said, you could save yourself a ton of heartache and headache. You wouldn't even have to be a believer. Now, granted, you're still going to run into the judge one day. But your life getting there would be a lot smoother. You would know how to operate with money. You would know how to operate with your words. You would know how to operate with your spouse. You would know how to operate with nasty, mean people. Because it's right there. What else have we done? It's plain. Verse by verse. Verse after verse. You can just pluck them and use them. There it is, man. And it matches this one. Two chapters later, three chapters later. Proverbs is really hard to misinterpret It's also one of the reasons why people will go to the New Testament and they'll point to the letter James, the book of James, and say that is the New Testament equivalent of a proverb. It's very practical, very straightforward, and very hard to misinterpret. And finally, what do we know? These have been powerful. They are life-changing. They can protect you. They can give you authority. I've told you before, people that know the Word of God will have insight into every person they deal with. If you want to be better at your job, if you work with people in any field, sales, counseling, you're in the hospital dealing with people that are struggling, if you work with people at all and you want to be better at your job, learn the wisdom literature. You'll learn when they need help. You'll learn when you're being played. You'll learn who to dodge. You'll learn who to tie in with. Who to love and to care for as best you can. You'll learn all that stuff. These are powerful, powerful sayings. And they all come from this person that it would look like would be an unstoppable force. Now I find myself in the the deep end of the pool here. Because I'm getting ready to quote something else that I know I'm going to butcher. Because I didn't think about it until even just now. But I once heard it said that the idea of kings in scripture, Saul is who we would pick initially. Why? He was head and shoulders above everyone else. He looked like a king. looked like a warrior. Solomon is who we would pick if we had our wits about us. He's wise. Wealthy. His father was a good man. Like He checks all these boxes like if we're picking man this would be the guy. No, Saul's not the guy. Solomon that, that guy would be the guy. But what do we see? Well, if you go to the the real king in Christ, you and I see someone that has all the wisdom, none of the drawbacks. He doesn't look like what the world would expect to be a king. He wasn't head of shoulders above everyone else. His character was light years above everyone else's. But you couldn't see it from the outside in. And so when you and I look at Solomon, as we get ready for this, 1 Kings chapter 4, we're kind of looking at this thing, thinking, man, this guy should be an unstoppable force. There should be nothing that gets in his way. He honored God with his request, and God said, man, you have honored me so well, asking for wisdom. You remember we went through that prayer. Solomon was looking at the Lord, and he was in the Lord's Prayer like like God comes to him in a dream he talks to him and he's there sleeping, standing, talking whatever it looks like to be Solomon in that moment and he goes through this list of stuff saying I am young I'm a youth I don't know what I'm doing you have given me a great people they are your people I want to lead them well and I am incapable of doing that that's a fantastic prayer and he says give me wisdom and God says, you've honored me with that. So I'm going to give you riches, fame, and a long life too. Amazing. As we've read this story, and you and I would say, man, this guy has got to be an unstoppable force. Look, we'll see a piece of that in 1 Kings chapter 4. Verse 20 and 21 says this, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Go to verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and Heman. Anybody my age, did you get Heman out of that? (laughs) Come on. Heman and Kolkol and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard the wisdom who had heard of his wisdom like this guy should be an unstoppable force this kingdom should be an unstoppable force right now they're they're eating they're drinking they're happy god has given him wisdom he's expanded his mind to the i mean just look at the sand of the seashore like this is a huge deal He's wiser than all of the people. He's famous in all the nations. This guy has gravitational force. What do I mean by that? People are coming to speak to him. They want to test the stories for themselves. And see if he really is that wise. Is he really that good? So he's a gravitational force. He's pulling people in. To come into the kingdom. They're bringing him tribute. This should end... Well, could anything possibly go wrong? If you keep reading in First Kings, you'll see the list of his accomplishments. First Kings chapter 5, he prepares to build the temple. Chapter 6, he builds the temple and hears again from the Lord. In verse 11, God speaks to him again. God shows up to Solomon twice and speaks to him a third time. This is amazing. And it's just in these couple chapters. First Kings seven, he builds his palace and furnishes the temple. First Kings chapter eight, the ark is brought in, and the glory of God falls. I said it was so thick, so heavy, and I can't remember when I, when I preached on that passage a while back. But what was what floored me in that is, you know, the work that we do here, the glory of God is all we're shooting for teaching class and singing and and opening the word, these things are wonderful and they are a piece of that. But when the glory of God falls, the priests couldn't even do their work. Is that an amazing story? God's presence was so heavy and so good, it just overcame everything. That's what happens in 1 Kings under Solomon's leadership. The people rejoice. 1 Kings chapter 9, the Lord appears to him for a second time. 1 Kings 10, He uh, his renown just expands. He had accomplishments galore. He's on an absolute roll. It's like uh, I keep mentally getting the picture of this like symphony or whatever. And just each one of these chapters is two or three people just banging them cymbals together. Boom, boom, like amazing crescendo, mountaintop, mountaintop, mountaintop. 1 Kings 10 and then 1 Kings chapter 11. And it just goes, Ooh. over. What in the world could possibly happen? Solomon is overcoming his wisdom. He has some serious holes in his wisdom, and we don't see it until we see the whole picture pulled together. I thought about this one this morning, and, and we'll read it here in just a minute, but the idea of Solomon's house took. He finished both projects in 20 years. The house of the Lord took seven. The temple took seven to build, which means his house took about 30. The temple was a certain size, and Solomon's house was almost double that size. As I was reading through these things, I could not help but be stuck with or struck with that picture. Here's the temple of the Lord and it takes this long to build and it's this side. And then here's Solomon's palace and it takes almost twice as long to build and it's almost twice as big. And I wonder in my mind if that's not the first sign something is desperately wrong. Think about that with me. God has commissioned you to do a project for him, one that your father longed to do but couldn't, one that your father had gathered up the material for and had set everything in its path, and when it was time to build that, you piggyback that by building yourself double what the Lord has asked you to build for him. There's something about that that just stirs me. Like, man, maybe that's problem number one with Solomon's life. Maybe there wasn't enough perspective to dial him back in, like, you know what? If God's house is this big, mine probably should be bigger. If God's house took seven years to build, mine probably shouldn't take twice that long. He's overcoming his wisdom. The, the piece of this, I think, we actually see in Scripture is in 1 Kings chapter 9. In 1 Kings chapter 9, there's a couple verses there starting in Verse 10. Uh, and at the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses the house of the Lord and the king's house and Hiram king of Tyre had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold as much as he desired King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee now here's where it gets a little bit weird but, but when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him they did not please him therefore he said what kind of cities are these? You have given me, my brother. So they called the land Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent the king 120 talents of gold. I don't want to read too much into this passage, but I just want you to see something. Hiram, if you read the passages before, was a phenomenal friend of King David and a phenomenal friend and ally of Solomon. He is given, 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 given. He's given to help build the temple. Him and Solomon are working together. All of this stuff goes down. He's given to help Solomon build his house. And when it comes time for Solomon to be generous, he pulls off 20, I would say another word, but I'm not going to because I preach, stinky cities. And goes them out to his friend. It's a little payment for what you've done for me. And when his friend shows up, instead of being impressed, he's let down. Now, I don't know if that tells you anything about the character of Solomon that we're seeing right now, but that tells me something is wrong. This guy has loved you. He loved your father. He has given you uh, anything you needed, everything you needed to make God's house and your house something spectacular. He's made your father's kingdom stronger, and he's making your kingdom stronger. And how do you repay him with something lackluster? luster? I'll pick the dregs and I'll give you these as an honor. I just think there's something about Solomon's possessions here that are overcoming his wisdom. His possessions are clouding something in him. He has everything and yet he wants more. His greed allowed him to dishonor a loyal friend to David and a faithful ally. But Solomon himself would preach against this. He would teach against this. Proverbs 16, 8, better is a little with righteousness. Righteousness. The what great revenues with injustice. Solomon would rail against the idea of having all of this stuff when his mind was right. But as he's living through the story, things get cloudy. And I really think we see a big piece of why Solomon's fall is so drastic in this passage his possessions had a hold of him, he did not have a hold of them. If not, he would have honored this with something extravagant instead of giving him the dregs of what was left. You and I, like, being in the position of Solomon, you and I would only discredit or dishonor someone like this because we deemed them not a threat or we did not love or care about them. There's no other reason. And so Solomon is a king in a very high position. He either looks at Hiram as somebody that's not to be honored or feared. One of those things is a problem with Solomon's character. His possessions have created in him his wealth and his stuff has made in him something greedy. Chapter nine. Flip over with me to First Kings chapter 11. So always... Overcoming his wisdom. How about this one? pragmatism. Pragmatism, read the passage with me, just the first couple of verses. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. I think the first piece of why any king would do this, we see this all throughout history, because what happens when you create a marriage between two kingdoms? Peace. And Solomon, in his pragmatism, if it works, do it. Listen, this is one of the most disastrous, the most evil things our culture has been into and will not let go of. We watch our media and entertainment go through this all the time. We watch it on social media. If it works, do it. It's not true, but I'll repeat it anyway. Or it's a half truth, but I'm going to say it anyway. And I'm going to run it on repeat. We know that even within the the, the confines of some uh, news organizations, they will only say certain things, but they will say them 10,000 times. That's the picture of pragmatism. It's not necessarily true, and it's definitely not helpful, but it works. If it works, do it. It is a threat to biblical authority, and it is one of the best reasons, one of the easiest reasons, one of the neatest reasons to disobey Scripture. That should terrify all of us. Because the outcome is really what we're always looking for. So if the outcome looks like it's going to be okay, then how I got there to me triggers. Oh, that's okay. This seems like a good place. It must be all right. God cares about the means. He cares about the process. He cares about the things that get us to where we're going. The character development that's going on there. He cares about all of that. And so when you guys see and diagnose pragmatism anywhere, we have to kill it. You have to get your children out of it. You have to realize what they're talking about and how their worldview is being shifted or changed in the idea, well, this works, and so it's obviously okay. It is not. It works in one field of vision, but we don't get to see what God is getting ready to pull out. Pour out on that person, that situation, and it may work until the moment that person dies and they wake up in the presence of a King Jesus that is holy and righteous and holding people accountable. Pragmatism is hellish and horrible, it is a lie that brings about the idea that God doesn't care about the means, He only cares about the ends. Many a church have gone off the tracks with this idea. Not every mega church, not every huge church falls into this category, but many of them were built on the idea of entertaining people and having fun and having a good message and people feeling better when they leave and all this other stuff. So what you have to do in order to maintain that is you have to sift things out of Scripture that you refuse to talk about. You have to refuse to call people to account for sin or to repent. You have to refuse to do those things. And many churches right now that are impotent, they have no power, no authority. Why? Because pragmatism entered in and they said, well, we can do good work. The money's coming in. We can do missions. These people are getting saved. And we got to build a bigger sanctuary. We've got to buy another bus. And many a people that started off with a good heart in the right direction let pragmatism enter into their philosophy. And they've created something that's not the church anymore. This is dangerous. And it really brings the ruin to Solomon and the nation of Israel. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 says this. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of the saints. Let me ask you a question. If you are a king that believes Proverbs chapter 2, why would you do anything to create peace When the Lord is the one watching you. Because you and I can have that same question posed to us right now. Why would you and I do anything ungodly, evil, or wrong? So that we can either protect ourselves or or maintain our fortune or do this or do that. Because worldly wise it makes sense. Why would you and I sit back and keep our mouth shut when injustice is being poured out in front of us? Kids, why would you sit in your schools and watch other young ones be mistreated and abused and hurt and yet you not say a word? Why? Because if you don't say anything, you won't get on their radar either. That's pragmatism. It's cowardice. It's just doing the right thing for the easy thing or it's just doing the right thing for the thing that looks like it works. Proverbs 2 says, He is a shield. Who God, is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of the saints. If you do what the Lord wants you to do, you don't have to protect yourself or anybody else that you love. If you and I walk in His ways, He stands guard. If you're a king, you don't have to create peace with other nations by bringing in ungodly people. That will eventually and very, very quickly drive your kingdom into oblivion. You don't have to do that. You need to stand on principle. So pragmatism is a piece of Solomon's problem. How about the next one? Overcoming wisdom, passions and pleasures. His appetites caused attachments that created curses. And as I say this out loud, I know I fall into this category. I know most of us in America fall into this category. Like we can talk all the junk we want about how much we don't have and how much more we need. And if you and I will just shift that field of vision to Africa or or South America, if you go to an island nation where they go to dumps to find their food, you and I will figure out very, very quickly, wait a second, something's wrong with my assessment here. I need you to understand something. Most of us sitting here, most of us watching, most of us in America today are in the upper, upper class. And so when you read this, do not think of someone else. We need to think of ourselves. A man that has everything is rarely satisfied with anything. Solomon had everything. And instead of having one wife, one queen, he had 700. Y'all can make your jokes later. Every guy sitting around like that, like, man, how did he keep 700 happy? (laughs) Every woman sitting around is like, probably that's a good ratio. Get him out of here. (laughs) Tired of dealing with this stuff. Once once every two years, we'll hang out. (laughs) His appetite's caused him to what? Create attachments that later created curses. And you and I have that same tendency. When passion and pleasure run us, what we find out is we get left high and dry. Nothing ever fills us up. And we end up being very angry because we were let down. What does the world tell you? Now, the world tells you if you have this, this, or this, you're going to be totally fine. A little more money, right? This conquest, that conquest, this excitement, this thing... This spouse, this person. And you and I get to doing all kinds of stuff that's not proper. Because our passions are driving something that is fool's gold. It's going to curse you. It's going to hurt you. Solomon does that. He had 700 wives, verse 3, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Turned away his heart. The pragmatism of marrying a couple to create peace. There wasn't 700 nations. It wasn't all pragmatic. He was a man of intense appetite and he was the king. and He was the wisest man to ever live and he was famous and people just flocked to him to partake. And so he just took what he wanted. His passions and pleasure. This will get you and I in so much trouble. It'll get us in trouble relationally. How about this one? It'll get us in trouble financially. Uh. And the problem is when you wake up at 75, 80, 85, and you look back and you see it all the time that you wasted chasing things that really didn't mean anything. When you and I could have had more out of life over a meal with family and friends than we could have in a bigger house or a nicer car. I mean, honestly, even the idea of vacations, if we just, if we manipulated a couple things in our schedule or a couple things in our calendar, most of us could take an extra vacation or two with family and just get away from everything. I don't know if your family sees that like ours does, but man, it is a joy. It's always fun. Now, it's crazy and chaotic, and the car rides will make you insane, and earbuds and, you know, bulletproof glass in the back and soundproof chamber, all that stuff. But when you get there, you just get a chance to decompress and to stop and just to let everything else go. It's a wonderful time. You talk to people that camp a lot, and they'll tell you the same thing. Now, camping, or what was the thing? camping the only hobby where you pay a ton of money to live like you're homeless? <laughs> Pretty good. There was also a racial component to that, but I'm not going to say it. I am going to say it. So it's only white people that did that. Come on, that's funny. It's hysterical. I'm white. I can say that. Our passions and our pleasures get us in trouble. They'll ruin your credibility, they'll ruin your integrity, they'll ruin your bank, they'll make you work in a job that you hate for far too long. How about that one? How about that one in America, right? I hate my job, but I can't leave because my debt or my desires drive me into this position where I cannot go anywhere. What if your desires or your debt wasn't there? What if you woke up one morning and said, my job makes me a worse person, I'm done. He called up and didn't even give you two weeks. Out. Appreciate it. Passions and pleasures. What would Proverbs chapter 5 say? Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, A graceful doe. And I love this. We preached on it a couple weeks ago. Be intoxicated always in her love. There's beauty there. If Solomon had picked him one Jewish woman to love and to care for and to pour his life into, the nation of Israel wouldn't be worshiping false gods in the coming years. They wouldn't have been handing their children into the burning uh, idols so that they could sacrifice them to false gods or what scripture would say is demons. They would have never done that. Solomon's lineage would have went on how about the next piece? 1 Kings 11 verse 4 says, For when Solomon was old, the wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. What does he become? He becomes a pliable peacekeeper. I told you, one P and you're going to have half your nose done. He becomes pliable. Becomes a peacekeeper. This also ought to tell you and I that being wise does not mean you will not make bad decisions. There's something deeper than Solomon's wisdom. It is a heart wholly devoted to God. It is a heart that looks like David's that though there was... Massive failure could come back and still be known as a man after God's own heart. It is a heart that looks like, I believe it's Acts chapter 4, where the disciples are brought in, you know, before all the learned people. And when they leave, they said they couldn't believe these were unlearned fishermen, but they could tell they had been with Jesus. That's what this kind of wisdom and heart attitude together, that's what they create. We cannot just say I want to be wise and then expect not to make bad decisions because honestly people that think they're wise or know they're learned make some of the worst decisions because they can do the mental gymnastics it it takes to basically make it okay. Like I know this really isn't right but if I think about it this way for this long and maybe grab some counsel from this person or this person, man, this really bad idea just became a good idea. I married some foreign wives. I brought him in. We're going to have peace with the nations. We won't have to go to war anymore. Our sons will be safe. And then later on, as he wears down and his vigor goes away a little bit, right? And he's sitting around, and they're just still handling. Because the there's seven hundred of them. It's a lot of blowback. I'm done. Lord, take me home. I've created a mess, guy. But man, they're just hitting. Me. Yeah, it's seven hundred to one without anybody else standing there with you and saying, you need to keep pushing back. Without a son of honor standing there beside you and saying, get out of the king's presence. We're not doing that. He'll defile the nation. God has told us not to do this. But when Solomon was old, and I threw that word in there I hate because there's a piece of it in there, and passive. His wives turned away his heart after other gods. It was not wholly true to the Lord like his father, David. Proverbs 20 verse 7 would say, The righteous who walks in his integrity blessed are his children after him. Sometimes, let me tell you something, sometimes that blessing is simply this. Your kids, when they're making a mess or being messy or doing things they shouldn't be doing, the blessing is this. They have a backdrop that they can't escape where mom or dad or grandma or grandpa have set this backdrop up to where that's what it looks like to be a godly person and they can't escape it. My life's a mess. I'm 25 and I'm making poor decisions. I'm 30, 35, making poor decisions. I'm running from the Lord. And yet in the back of their mind constantly is, man, mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, that crazy person at church that I thought was nuts. But I now know, man, maybe they had a little something together. Like their life was never like this. What is wrong? Sometimes that's the blessing you and I and our children. Why? Because they're making decisions on their own and they're grown adults. Sometimes the blessing is they can never escape a godly influence. Why? As long as they have memories of me, my wife, you, your spouse, your parents, they cannot escape godly influence. And so the blessing that comes after, the blessing for Solomon would have been way different. He wrote this and then he cursed his children, he wrote the Proverbs. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Unbelievable. How about this one? Just the fear, just the peer pressure, the volume of bad company he uh, kept made it impossible to resist. He had given a lot of access of his heart and life's direction to the wrong people. What's the difference between Solomon and you going to work in the world and doing it properly? The difference is this Solomon invited this influence. He welcomed it. He made them lives. He created connections with them. He brought them in and made them part of his inner circle, even though it was pretty big. But he made these connections with these people. He invited them. He wanted them there. It wasn't ministry anymore. He brought them to him and did life with him. He consciously made the wrong decision. So when you wake up tomorrow and you have to go to work or you have to go to school, this is not the same thing. You will be outnumbered there, but those are not your people. That's not your safe place. When they're influencing you and the, the pressure is there, that's a time for you to have your guard up. That's not fellowship. It's ministry. The reason why scripture says do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Why? Because the pressure will always be in the wrong direction. Even if they are loving and nice, the foundational issues of life you will never agree with them on. You can't. Why? Because they don't believe I've created you for a mission and a purpose. They don't believe that Jesus is the son of God and that he is your uh, a redemption for all the mess ups and all the horrible things you've done. The best of people in the world, all they have to offer is just do better. Just be nice. You can't even define those words without a biblical context. What's it mean to be nice? Or for some people to be nice is just to let you do what you want. If you have a kid, you understand that's not nice. It's lazy. It's easy. I can't let my one-year-old do what he wants. I can't let my 11-year-old do what he wants. A couple of you 18, 19, 20, 25, 30. Parents can't let you do what you want either. We need that. And so in the process, this peer pressure is being pushed and it's a lot and it is shoving him in the wrong direction. What's it say in verse 5 to 8? For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Not only now is he allowing it in the kingdom, what does it say he does? He goes after. He started worshipping other gods. Friends, this life of plenty this easy existence didn't work very well for Solomon. As 2021 20, Americans, you and I need to take this picture to heart. Solomon did not have a refrigerator filled with food. He did not have air conditioning. He did not have a car to travel the world in. He did not have the idea that tomorrow everything was going to be okay and next week and he had a 401k and a retirement and he was going to die at 95 just in a good old age and sleep in the bed. He didn't have any of that. You and I haven't. It would be really easy to say that our lives are much easier than one of the most wealthy, strongest kings to ever live. It did not work well for him. All the ease, all the stuff created opportunities to be pulled away from the Lord. Why? Because when David is running for his life, there's only one place to go. Help me. You told me certain things. You made me certain promises. Help me. But when that pressure is not there, it gets very easy just to kind of sit back and think you got it. Think you're going to be okay. And all of a sudden, the necessity for God is just really kind of a, a nice little thing. It's a, it's fluff on the top. It's not a necessity anymore. 5 to 8, verse 6. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did it and did not uh, wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place uh, for Kamosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. So he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Solomon would write Proverbs 1, verses 10, 15, and 18. My son of sinners entice you, do not consent. Do not walk with them. They set an ambush for their own lives. If sinners entice, don't consent. Don't go. Dig your heels in. Trust in the in the protection and the power of God. And what happens now? Solomon has overcome his wisdom, and now he's overcome his blessing. Chapter 11. We need just a couple more verses, and we're done. And the Lord was angry with Solomon. Was his heart turned away from the Lord and the Lord of Israel who had appeared to him twice and he commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods but he did not keep what the Lord had commanded verse 11 therefore the Lord said to Solomon since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I commanded you I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant He worked so hard at overcoming his wisdom that he actually overcomes his blessing. And what God had poured out in abundance constantly since he was a young man, he now withdraws. We made a deal, Solomon. You didn't keep your end. I'm going to make this very gospel-oriented here in just a minute, but I want you to see it in the life of Solomon. What happens? There's punishment. Solomon's sins would be dealt with What according to the promise of God? You see, not all of God's promises are wonderful and glorious and happy for you and happy for me. Some of God's promises are, if you don't follow me, this will happen. And it did. Even the idea of punishment to me is hard on this one because he knew it was coming. God had already told him. You do this, this. You do that. It all goes away. The kingdom will be taken. All of it would have been taken had it not been for David's testimony. All of it. Do you understand? He would have erased his father's testimony had God himself not been the one to look out for David's lineage. God said, I would take it all, but I loved your father and he loved me. I will leave you one try. And your son will rule over it. The rest of them will be taken and handed to who? They'll be handed to a servant. Scroll down and it starts to tell that story of what goes on. And then you get to verse 43. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. There's punishment. And then there's a point. We spent months not just dealing with the literature that David had given us. We spent months looking at his story and watching him overcome this and overcome that. And what we've seen right now could have taken place the first 20 years of Solomon's life. And then it was basically over. All the good stuff he did was build the temple, pray a couple times, see the Lord. And then because it didn't affect how he ruled, it just went away. And so like I said before, it's like chapter four, boom, somebody hits the symbols in five, boom, amazing. Six, chapter seven, chapter eight. Man, this is unbelievable. This is going to go on and on and on. And then in chapter 11, it says, and he took foreign wives. So by the end of chapter 11, his kingdom is taken and he is dead. God's promises are not all good. But they are always a picture of his character. If you and I deviate, if we run, if we get filled up in this land of plenty, if you and I overcome our own blessings, our demise and our frustrations, we'll be like that. Now the gospel makes this different. And I want to string this together for you real quick. We see Solomon make a deal with the Lord. Could Solomon keep it? Say no. Say no, my community. I just read it to you. He didn't keep it. No! He could not keep it. Now, go back with me to the book of Genesis. Who else did God make a covenant with? Oh, this is so good. Abraham. Abraham. And what did God do with Abraham? I'm going to make you a covenant. I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to send the Redeemer through you. Your your people are going to be like the sand of the seashore. Now, go get the sacrifices because we're going to walk this blood trail together. And right before it happens, this makes me want to be right before it happens. God puts Abraham to (laughs) sleep. He says, "I'll walk it with myself." Remember that? Smoking pot, the flaming torch, and they walked the blood trail. Why? Wow. Because it's the wisest man, the wisest seed of Adam. I've caught myself all week thinking that way. Like Jesus was the wisest man that ever lived. Don't over, don't over spiritualize this with me, right? But the the wisest descendant of Adam to ever live could not keep God's covenant. What hope do we have? So in the story of Abraham, in order for the Messiah to come, and in order for you and I to be saved, somebody has to walk that trail. God walks it with himself. And then a couple thousand years later, Jesus comes on to the picture. Because you see, Abraham didn't keep that covenant. He couldn't. But because he broke it, someone... Between the smoking pot and the flaming torch, someone had to die because the blood trail had been walked. And somebody walk it, walked it on Abraham's behalf and he failed. So what happens to Christ? He pays that price. God comes and God dies. To fulfill an end of a bargain for a promise that man for a man that could keep it, for people that couldn't keep it. And as we end the day on Solomon, I'm just begging you to see if this guy was tripped up over this stuff. Who do we think we are that we got it under control? That our possessions are good enough, or they're worth sacrificing things for that we can see? Pragmatism is this. Pragmatism is thinking you can figure it out better than God can. The Lord gives you and I rules to abide by. Abide by them. That's not legalism. It's protection. Possessions got in the way. Pragmatism gets in the way. Pleasure and passions get in the way. Peer pressure gets in the way. If they took Solomon to the point where he lost his kingdom and he led the nation of Israel down a horrible road for years to come, as we we dig through the next uh, couple books of Scripture, we're going to see his road cursed the nation over and over and over and over. Wicked king, wicked king, wicked king. That's the wisest man to ever live. As they come this morning to play, I just want to remind you a couple things. In a time of plenty, you and I need to be careful in our dealings. Yesterday's wisdom and allegiances do not immediately transfer to today's living. Yesterday's fidelity could quickly or even ever so slowly fade into a mess like Solomon's. You and I could fade right into that one compromise tomorrow and you and I are on that road. It's not one sin. Do not ever think that. It is a compromise. Most of us don't jump into a really bad sinful decision. And finally this one. Guard your heart against the power of possessions the allure of pragmatism, the wildfire of ungoverned passion, the promises of unabated pleasure. Guard yourself against the easy road of the peacekeeper. Guard yourself against the welcomed manipulation of wicked fears. What you and I don't welcome is a lot easier to, sh- to shove aside. That's why that last one says the welcomed manipulation of wicked fears. Because when you and I invite them in and they start to talk and we get close and we create those loving connections, whether it be someone that you're dating, someone that doesn't know the Lord, whether it be a best friend, a confidant, God help us, whether it be a business partner, man, they got lots of money and they seem like they know what they're doing and they're good at this or they're good at that or this person is popular in school and man, if I just get close to them, I'll be popular too. Those are pragmatic, evil things. But when you and I get close to them, then their words matter more because we've invited them into our life. So if you and I are inviting people that should be ministry into fellowship positions, their manipulation will be so much harder to fight through. And that's why you and I have to be careful who we bring close. Why? Because what happens when it overcomes our wisdom? It begins to take away our blessing. Just stand with me this morning. If you need something, you come mm